0: was an intermittent break with COVID, so probably about a two-year time horizon. Um, but before I begin, um, I need a volunteer. Someone want to read verses 11 to 20? Samuel, would you like to read it? Thank you very much. So as I said, we'll be finishing here today. And uh, we'll start in verse 11. Last week we ended on, obviously, verses 9 and 10. But we see in verses 9 and 10, just to reiterate just for a brief minute here, setting up for verse 11, that the women were going to tell the disciples what had transpired, what had happened, that Jesus rose from the dead. And as they're on their way to meet, the disciples, Jesus, appears to them in bodily form. And he says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and that's where they will see me. So the women at this time period are on a mission to go tell the disciples all that had happened. Now, setting up verses 11, we have also messengers of good news, but not for the purposes that the, uh, that the women had for the disciples. What we see here is that some of the guard came into the city and reported the chief priest all the things that had happened. So the guard at the tomb, the witnesses of what they had seen, the angel coming down and the body not being there, stone rolled away, they too were witnesses of what had happened. They were witnesses of the empty tomb. So when it says some of the guard, some commentators think that this may have been the officers of the guard. Uh, You know, Because in military terms, the words of a private don't mean much you know, to authorities and to politicians. So it was probably the officers or the commanding centurion or whomever it was, whether it was the Jewish temple guard or Roman soldiers, where they went and reported these things, as we'll see here, to the uh, assembly of the elders, all that had happened. And looking at this context, just a thought here, is that looking at the reaction of the chief priest and the leading Jews, compare that to that of the disciples. We made mention last week that when the women had brought the message of the good news of Jesus Christ rising from the dead, not being in the tomb, that some of the, all of the disciples thought it was an idle fable. They thought that what the women were saying was bunk, that it wasn't possible. But looking at this passage here, this portion of verses uh, from verses 11 down to uh, uh, 15, we have that they, the uh, chief priest in the um, assembly of the elders, when they received this news, they didn't actively deny that Jesus rose from the dead, unlike what the disciples did. So just think about that for a minute, where they hear this news, they don't deny it, they think, well, maybe it's true. If these officers of of the temple guard or these Roman soldiers said it had to be true, then it most likely was true. So they don't deny what had happened, unlike what the disciples did. Think about that for a second. These pagan uh, uh, Sanhedrin and, and, and Jews who didn't believe in Jesus Christ, they didn't actively deny that it happened. In fact, as we'll see here in just a moment, they want to spread lies that would transpire over the next couple hundred years. In fact, over the next couple thousand years, that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. So they didn't deny it, unlike what the disciples did. Now, obviously, in a few moments, we'll see that the disciples end up believing that Jesus rose from the dead. But that's just from uh, some food for thought here. Um, Benson, Charles Benson, in his commentaries make mention that the unbelievers were the first to share the good news of Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. They were the first ones in in the uh, irony and the sovereignty of God how all things work together for good. Obviously, these soldiers and the Jewish leaders meant it for evil, but these soldiers were the first ones to confess to these pagan leaders of Israel that Jesus rose from the dead. And interestingly enough, too, both remained apparently unbelieving even after knowing what took place. So after seeing these miracles, the angel descending from heaven, we have all accounts here of what the Bible is saying that the soldiers remained unbelieving. And we'll see what happens here in verse 12. Verse 12, it says, When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers in verse 13, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while he slept. So the soldiers seeing all of these things were then paid off with a large sum of money. Here the soldiers receive a reward from the Sanhedrin Council to stay hush about the body uh, about the supernatural event that took place. and they wanted to spread the rumor that the body was not there, not because it rose from the dead, but because the disciples of Jesus came and stole the body away. So what these soldiers did here in effect is really they, they did sell their souls. For some temporary money. For some temporary silver. Kind of what Judas did. For 30 pieces of silver. He he sold out Christ. He sold his soul. He thought that his physical pleasures. The physical money of this world. Were worth far more than his eternal soul. And that's what these soldiers were doing here. Selling out a lie. For some temporal money. And perpetuating this lie of Christ. Uh, in, for, in 2 Timothy You'll see the Apostle Paul, I I think, in chapter 4, where he says, uh, Demas, who was one of his helpers, had forsaken Paul. And the Apostle Paul says, he loved this present world. And that's what these soldiers hear. After seeing the supernatural event, they loved the present world more than they loved the truth. They denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is just a stop and think moment here. We won't dwell on it too long. But does it ever come to anyone's mind or think about the way people act? So I think it appears to every one of our minds. But what I mean here, I think of the mass shooters and the villains and the criminals and the genocidal maniacs, et cetera, all throughout history. We even see them in our own day. People committing, you know, despotic acts of violence. I mean, that the guy uh, down in Memphis, Tennessee, Last week, stalked that woman, sexually assaulted her, then murdered her. Just completely at random. Stalked her, then killed her. And time and again we see this on the news. I think people often think to themselves, do these people have no comprehension or understanding of anything that is to come in the next life? I mean, I think the vast majority of people know, unless you're a complete psychopath, that those evil acts are in and of themselves evil. There's wickedness there. What these soldiers are doing is wicked. It's evil. It is denying a supernatural event. And just thinking back of all of these individuals and just the hardness of their heart. Basically handing themselves over to the devil to do his work. And I think, you know, Romans 1, the Apostle Paul talks about that throughout the whole chapter where basically God gives them over to themselves to do what they want to do. You know, gives them over to worship The creature rather than the creator gives them over to do the sexual and immoral desires that they want to do. Time and again, time and again, people do that all throughout history. And it's just fascinating to me. A lot of these individuals, it just appears they have no understanding of of the judgment to come. You know, even if you weren't a Christian, you would still think that, you know, doing these things, there would have to be some payoff, there has to be some judgment at some point in the future and i've i've never been a murderer myself so i i can't get into the mind of of these individuals but i would love to just see what they think you know take a, a 9-11 is today 21 years ago you know what did the people who flew the planes to the towers what did they think creating this mass act of evil you know, if they were muslim you know the 72 virgin deal but nonetheless you're killing 3,000 people for it. And it's a little rabbit trail, but nonetheless, I think it's important to think about here how these guys completely sold themselves out for some money. I thought in the Old Testament, a perfect example of it is, is King Ahab, where time and again, he saw the miracles of Elijah. All that he did, the Mount Carmel victory, where Elijah calls fire down from heaven to consume the wet sacrifice. Ahab was present, sitting right there, yet he hardened his heart. He did not want to see. The soldiers here hardened their hearts. The Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the the Jewish elders hardened their hearts because they did not want to see what transpired. So again, just a rabbit trail, but just food for thought, just trying to understand the pagan world that we live in and why people do what they do. And I think it's a real simple answer. I think it's Romans 1, God giving themselves over to themselves. Nonetheless, I digress. Verse 13 Anyone have any comments? Yes. Um, you know, when you were talking about me, the man in shooting the shootings and everything and we were discussing this yesterday, and I guess it really comes back to people think this is new and this is bad, which it is, coming back to ecclesiastics with nothing new That is that is very true. And it, people always talk about like the good old days, the good old days. Well, what were the good old days, really? You know humankind is the same and the Garden of Eden after the Garden of Eden Cain killed Abel it's the same now people killing their brothers and sisters and very good point Tom there's nothing new under the Sun yes Becky Humanly speaking, it's very logical to sell out someone for money, you know, if there's no morality whatsoever. Dad, did you have something? Definitely. Anything else before we continue on? So uh, continuing with verse 13 where they want to perpetuate this lie that the disciples came and stole away the body of Jesus. Matthew uh, Matthew Matthew Henry, excuse me, he said in his uh, summarized commentaries, he said this. Let me read this paragraph here real quick because I think it's very pertinent to the story. And he said, and stole him away while we slept. Which was a very unlikely thing and a foolish scheme for such a body of men to form. There is no show of probability in it that the disciples who were intimidated by the taking and putting Christ to death. It were now shut up in a house for fear of the Jews that these should venture out in the night to take away the body of Christ. Which was decently and honorably interred in a garden of one of his disciples that is Joseph of Arimathea. And when they knew it was guarded by a company of Roman soldiers and who besides had no notion of his resurrection from the dead, nor never thought of it till he was risen and therefore would never attempt anything of this kind in order to give out such a report. So you kind of just think of the lunacy of this tale. The disciples, as as we see in John, they were shut up in a house for fear of the Jews. They had forsaken Christ and fled. For fear of their own skins. And not only that, but if they were going to go to the tomb, there were Roman soldiers there. The disciples were no dummies. These were probably men of war, a bunch, uh, 11 disciples going to try to take the body of who knows how many soldiers were there. Uh, I think oftentimes we think of two, but there could have been a lot more people, a lot more soldiers guarding the tomb. So this tale of, of the disciples coming and stealing away the body was just ludicrous. And plus the big stone that was rolled in front of the Uh, in front of the grave area they would have had to roll back and and take the body away so again just very unlikely it would have been nonsensical to try and steal the body while it was under heavy guard and we've already seen Peter's swordsmanship in earlier Matthew it was said in some ancient text that whenever Peter drew his sword the other disciples developed an eerie feeling that's just a joke that was a complete joke. I just put that in there. Lighten the mood. Yes. There is some irony in this. In that it says while they slept, while they were sleeping, how do they know what happened? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah that, that was their story. We were sleeping, but here's here's what happened. How do you know what happened? Yeah. It's yeah. Kind of <laughs> Plus, I think that goes to show the gullibility of people, too. Yeah. You know? Oh, you know, just whoever says it. So yes, Teresa. Yes, Teresa. Yes, and we'll we'll get that here in the, um, in the, in verse fourteen. Thank you for bringing up that point, where the Jewish leaders <clears throat> promised to these soldiers to appease the Roman authorities regarding the soldier's performance over the la- uh, the last twelve hours. So if they were sleeping or neglect of duty, that was a death sentence to a Roman soldier. <clears throat> and let's see here in Acts twelve nineteen. I'll give two specific examples of that in the book of Acts, where we're going to see in verse 12, 19 of Acts, when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. So if you remember in Acts 12, the people had been praying for Peter's release from prison. The angel of the Lord came and freed up. Peter walked him out, and then Peter appeared to the church. And then what happens the next day? As Herod comes down to examine what had happened, and he sees that this prisoner, Peter, had escaped, and he gives the order for the execution of the soldiers. And how it was under Roman law is that whatever punishment that that prisoner was under and who escaped is what the soldier would get. So, again, another ludicrous tale of what they're saying here, and the Jewish leaders promised to these soldiers, we understand something interesting happened. And this may have been to the conclusion, too, the credit of the Sanhedrin, they understood that what happened with Jesus may have been supernatural. You know, I think if they would have, you know, been skeptical of what had happened, if the disciples actually stole the body away, they would not have protected the soldiers, but... Maybe in the back of their minds, they actually believed that something supernatural had happened because they had seen all of these miracles that Jesus did, but their hearts were just so hardened that they weren't going to give credit to it. Another example is Acts 16, 25, and 27, this time with Paul in prison and Silas. It says, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. And then it goes on to say that Paul tells him to put his sword away. But you see, this prison guard was responsible for the whole prison and in Roman culture, you see time again, even in history, where suicide was at, not actually frowned upon. Now, oftentimes, when a general would lose a battle, they would commit suicide because it was better you know, to take your own life than, than face the public shame. So I think that's what this prison guard was doing here. He was going to kill himself, you know, run himself through with the sword. And Paul says, no, don't, don't do that for uh, other purposes. But we see this is the treatment of the soldiers if the Roman government were to treat them as they usually do. So verse 15, So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews even until this day. So the guards obeyed, and Rome was apparently appeased by the Jewish authorities. We don't, we're not given any text or any uh, instruction that the soldiers were put to death. It appears that the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders were successful in appeasing the Roman government and uh, quenching the wrath of of killing the soldiers. Now, the um, New Geneva Study Bible, let me read this. It says, this incident shows that clear evidence may have no effect on those who are committed to unbelief, that the story of the disciples stealing Jesus' body was still circulating in the days of Justin Martyr, that is in 160 A.D., so, near 130 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, give or take a couple of years, this story, according to Justin Martyr, was still circulating that the disciples had came and taken the body of Jesus away out of the tomb. Indicates uh, something of the desperate uh, of the desperation felt by the Jewish leaders in explaining the empty tomb. So they had to come up with something for their for their people. How was the body of Jesus not there? Well, because the disciples took it away. And it was still circulating 130 years later, and I'm sure it was probably circulating many times after that. Uh, it wasn't just a rumor that Christ had risen, but it was known to him that over 500 people saw the risen Savior. So this is another thing, too, is but the, I think what's interesting here, what they make mention of, this incident shows the clear evidence may have no effect On those who are committed to unbelief, again, Romans 1, where, you know, it's clear that there is a God. How do we know that there's a God? You can simply look outside. You can look at yourself and see that you're made. You know, something can't come from nothing. Something has to be eternal. And nonetheless, that's the whole world, you know, committed to unbelief. Why? Because they keep their eyes shut. They don't want to believe. And all the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, and what do we see? is that these individuals are still committed to unbelief. Many historical accounts of ancient figures like Alexander are recorded well after the time of their death. Christ was just a few years after his death. So Alexander the Great, what we know of Alexander the Great, wasn't actually recorded until three or 400 years after Alexander the Great lived. Uh, Arian, who was a Roman historian, was the one who wrote most of Alexander the Great's lifetime, But yet, no one doubts the existence of Alexander the Great and what he did. Now, there is another level of of Jesus Christ because the whole religion is built around him, the Christian faith. But nonetheless, we're given here in all four Gospels accurate accounts within, you know, a 30, 40-year time frame of the time Jesus lived and his resurrection and all of the witnesses. But yet, they're still committed to unbelief. You know, God gives us evidence for his existence. God gave us evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's plain to see, even in the Dead Sea Scrolls, all of the texts that have been found over the last couple hundred years confirming the existence of Jesus Christ and and the time period that all of this was written. Uh, From what I understand, the Quran, after the death of Muhammad, wasn't written until like 150 or 200 years later after the life of Muhammad. Now, if these stories were written 100 to 200 years after the time of Christ, then you could certainly say you could be skeptical of what had happened. But these can all be dated to within a 30, 40-year, first-generation, first-hand account of Jesus Christ rising from the dead. And we see in 1 Corinthians 15, as Pastor talked about last week, uh, read the first couple of verses where the Apostle Paul says he visited over 500 people. There were 500 witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, seeing him raised. I'm sorry, seeing his body after he was raised from the dead. So, this just wasn't a tale, these were first hand accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And before I uh, continue on to the Great Commission, anyone have uh, any thoughts, words they want to express? All right, now let's continue on to verse 16. Matthew 26, 32, let me go ahead and read that real quick. Let me read verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. Matthew 26, 32, Jesus says these words, But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So two chapters prior, Jesus makes this prophecy. He makes this announcement. And what do we have? We have the disciples going to Galilee as he had confirmed to the women The previous uh, uh, verse 9 and 10, he had told the women to tell my disciples to go to Galilee. So the disciples are obeying that to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And we have verse 17 here. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Presumably, these people here were the disciples. When they saw him, they worshipped him. When they saw Jesus... They worshipped him. Now, uh, this is just kind of anecdotal evidence, but it says when they saw him, they worshipped him. Some people, some commentators I read, think that what the Apostle Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, the 500 people were actually about 500 people gathered here in, in Matthew 28 when Jesus was about to send up into heaven. That's just kind of a theory. There's really not too much evidence to support that. But just something to think about, that there actually was more people here than just the disciples. There was a substantial amount of people here to see the ascension of Jesus Christ. But we have that they worshipped him. They worshipped him as God. Uh, In John 20, when Thomas saw Jesus, what did he say? My Lord and my God, a confirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ. This is confirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ. They worshipped him. As we see the angel in... Uh, Revelation 19, where the the Apostle John falls down on his face and worships the angel. The angel says, no, don't do that, for I am your fellow servant. And we have here that not only did Jesus take this worship, he accepted it. Why? Because he is the God-man. Confirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to focus here on these next three words, at least in the New King James Version here. But some... Doubted. Now the Greek word here for doubt is distazo. I think if I'm pronouncing that correct. Now this word here for doubt is only used one other time in the New Testament, and that word is used in Matthew fourteen thirty-one, when Peter is when when the disciples are in the boat and they see Jesus walking on the water, and Peter, being the bold gentleman that he is, gets out of the boat and says, "Lord, command me to come to you." Peter gets out of the boat and is standing and walking on the water. And he begins, as he's walking, he loses his attention on Christ, and he begins to focus on the wind and the waves that are around him. And Jesus says, why are you doubting me? Why are you turning your attention from me? So that's where that word distazo, D-I-S-T-A-Z-O, is used in the New Testament, Matthew 14, 31 and let me ask you this question. Let me put this to you. And here in Matthew, 17, or Matthew 28, 17, in human terms, let me classify this. In human terms, was it reasonable for these disciples and these individuals to doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ? In human terms. So just using logic, is it reasonable for them to doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I don't think if you answer this question one way or another, it's sinful. I'm saying in human terms, using human logic, was it right or was it uh, logical for them to doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It's not rhetorical. I think it was. Because humanly speaking, using human logic, how on earth would it be possible for someone to die and then be raised from the dead? I'm not saying it's right. It's right. I'm just saying logically from a human standpoint, doubting that someone was raised from the dead was a correct motive if there was unbelief there. And I think Thomas, I don't think he was in in John 20 when he when Jesus I don't know if Jesus scolded him, but Jesus said, blessed are those who do not see and believe. Jesus clearly gave evidence to Thomas because of his doubt. He said, look at, my, look at my holes in my hand, look at the hole in my side. And Thomas looked. It, it's not said that he put his hand in Jesus' side. I think that's just an add-on. But nonetheless, Thomas saw it. And he said, my Lord and my God. So Thomas saw. But I don't think from our perspective, from a sin nature perspective, that it was unreasonable for these individuals to doubt. Because having someone raised from the dead just, it didn't happen. But I think going further on, Jesus gives evidence of him being himself raised from the dead, obviously because he appears to them. Now, is it unreasonable in heavenly terms, that is in Christian terms, to doubt what Jesus Christ had said? And the answer is clearly no. It's not reasonable whatsoever to doubt that. And we see throughout Matthew and we see throughout the Gospels that time and again, Jesus was proving himself to be the son of God. He was proving himself to be God. And yet the disciples time and again doubted, even though they saw all of these miracles, they doubted. And we see even until the end, some of them, including Thomas, doubted that Jesus actually rose from the dead. So let me just classify. Humanly speaking, I don't think it's unreasonable to doubt, which is our sin nature. Faith speaking, putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it most clearly is unreasonable to doubt that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, especially when he showed himself to all of these people. And I think verse 17, the end of verse 17, but some doubted, is a wonderful transition into verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them. So there was doubt. What did Jesus do? He just didn't leave. He went and solved this doubt. He went and came and spoke to them proving himself to be raised from the dead. When Thomas uh, Thomas doubted, Thomas didn't see Jesus until a full eight days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A full eight days. But Jesus finally came to Thomas and soothed his doubt and said, Thomas, you see me? And he says, my Lord and my God. And I think similarly along here with verse 17, and Jesus came and spoke to them. He gave them evidence of their resurrection, saying, man, my dad and I were talking about this this week. Verse 18 is a wonderful verse in all of Scripture. All authority has been given to me in heaven and, and on earth. All authority. As we see clearly in John chapter 1, you know Jesus Christ being the word, he was in the beginning with God, We see the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3, 9 saying God created all things through Jesus Christ. We see in Hebrews 1, verse 2, creating all things through Jesus Christ. So this isn't Jesus, you know, he he hadn't abdicated the throne. He was still God when he died. He was still God when he rose from the dead. But from looking at the text here, he earned this. He earned all authority to be placed under him. Why did he earn it? Because he died and he conquered death. He came uh, union with the God and man, Jesus Christ. He came and he earned this title of being the God man. And what is it now? He sits on the right hand of God. And we're going to look at just a couple pieces of evidence here of where and what Jesus is doing right now. Now, Albert Barnes in his commentary, let me read this real quick. This is a great summation. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. He's quoting Jesus. The Son of God as creator had original right to all things, to control them and to dispose of them. John 1, 3, uh, Colossians 1, 16 and 17, another example. Hebrews 1, 8. But the universe is put under him more particularly as mediator, that he might redeem his people, that he might gather a church, that he might defend his chosen that he might subdue all their enemies and bring them off conquerors and more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. This is an earned position for what he did on the cross, being the mediator, being the God-man. Now because of his union with man, living a perfect life, dying, resurrecting, and ascending, he has the right to rule. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. All authority has been given to him because he can sympathize with our weakness. He was tempted in the wilderness 40 days by the devil, and what did he do? He conquered. He prevailed. He knows what it is like to be tempted. Philippians two nine. Philippians chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2, is a glorious summation of why Jesus has earned the title of mediator For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Why? Because he was tempted as we are yet without sin. As the first Adam fell, the second Adam, according to Matthew chapter 5, stood under temptation and rose from the dead. That is why all authority has been given to Jesus Christ. And we see eventually too is the consolidation and revelation of Jesus Christ's rule, right now he is still ruling and reigning on the right hand of God, most certainly, but he's allowing things to come to pass, but as we'll see gloriously at the end of the ages, whether it's next year or 2,000 years from now, he's going to come and he's going to consolidate his kingdom, destroy evil, and he's going to take his people home to be with him. That is the result of all authority given to Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth. And I think Uh, in Acts chapter 7 where Stephen is making a defense against the Jews and you see in verses 50 continuing on as he is sitting there as he's about to be stoned, as they had been cut to their heart what happens? As Stephen looks up and it says he sees God and he sees the Son of Man Jesus Christ standing on the right hand of God. And I think that is a glorious illustration of of what Jesus Christ is doing right now, having all authority under him on heaven and on earth all authority uh second Timothy one nine there's one mediator between God and man it's the man Christ Jesus, what he is doing right now all authority being wrapped around him under his thumb in verse nineteen any any comment okay. Man, I, I'm just answering all these questions today. It's quite remarkable. Uh, never mind. Yep, certainly. Gl- Glorious. Yeah. So, verse nineteen. Go. A commandment to evangelize—just that one word, "go," not stand idle, but go, go and evangelize the nations, not just to foreign fields. Bible Chapel supports ninety to one hundred thousand dollars of our budget goes to foreign missions, which is a great way of fulfilling what Jesus Christ had said here. But for those of us at home, our job is not just to support financially and to pray, which are wonderful things, but ...to go and evangelize our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, our family. We have a responsibility also to fulfill the great commandment. Go therefore make disciples of all nations. That is, once you're converted, make disciples of all nations across the world. We're to go across the world since Jesus Christ has authority in heaven and all earth. We are supposed to evangelize all of the earth, baptizing them in the name of the Father... In the Son, in the Holy Spirit. I'll just comment here quickly on this. This is a clear example a clear example of the Trinity here in Matthew. So we often hear, oh, you know, the, the Trinity is not explicitly in the New Testament. Well, I can tell you that you're not looking hard enough. It's written all throughout the New Testament. Not only here in Matthew 28, you know, if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2, full of the Trinity, All over the place. You know, John 17, the Trinity is all over the place, but we're given here an example by Jesus Christ, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, baptizing them in the triune God. In verse uh, verse 20, it says, Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let me read the note in my Bible, the New Geneva Study Bible. It says, Teaching them to observe. Disciples are not just taught what to believe, but how to believe. Jesus taught practical holiness. So, teaching converts the the lessons of Christ, what Christ had taught, and through the holy apostles, through the Holy Spirit, what they had been given to the churches. And he says, I am with you always. And let me read this. This is uh, kind of fascinating. Uh, I'm taking a New Testament 1 class this week, and I don't think coincidentally and the providence of God, what uh, what they had taught was uh, what was right here. It says, I am with you always. Jesus was named named Emmanuel, God with us at his birth in Matthew one twenty-three, And now he promises to be with his disciples to the end of the age. He is with them specifically in the responsibility of teaching his will to the world. So we're seeing in Matthew one twenty three the beginning of Matthew, God with us, and Jesus closes out his ministry before he's ascended on high. He says, I will be with you, God with us. And with that, done a couple minutes early. If anyone has any comments, yes, Becky. Yeah, I, I, I don't know off the top of my head. I think that's correct. I mean, in other Gospels, there's areas, you know, where Jesus says, I am my Father, a one. But mentioning all three, I'll have to get back with you. I'll do a little, I'll do a little digging. Well, that's funny you say that because this is a Presbyterian written Bible, the New Geneva Study Bible. So they have some stuff in there about the baptism. Well, you know, it's the whole household. You're just supposed to baptize the kids. And Some of the commentators are rather right Presbyterian, so they had, to, they had to get that in there. But uh, that's thats for a later debate. But uh, I appreciate your attention, and I uh, hope the book of Matthew really blessed you as uh, myself, my uncle and Dave went through it. So if you have any other comments, see me afterwards. Thank you very much.